good to be together. Happy Thanksgiving. And uh, the holidays have arrived. You can go and flip in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 22. And, and uh, we're going we're gonna to dive in here. I hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving. You know, in our family, we went down to Florida with my uh, brother and sister. And we, we saw both sides of my family down there. It was little Caleb's first Thanksgiving. That was so sweet. And, you know, we, we, my, my uncle owns a windsurfing shop on the beach or right next to the beach down in Fort Myers, Florida. And so we go down there. It was so exciting. and take my three-year-old son Camden, you know, to go windsurfing for the first time. And it was like 50 degrees and windy. It was cold. We had to wear wetsuits. They're like, you brought the cold with you. I mean, it was just, but we had a blast. We, we got to celebrate with two Thanksgiving meals. So if you haven't done that before, imagine how full you feel and how tired you are after the first meal and then double it. <laughs> we, were, we, we had such a good time. Um, and and it, what was really special to us was that it was my first time that, you know, Camden at three got to play with my cousin's kids and they got to do the things that I remember doing with my cousins. And I'm so used to being the next generation and that it's just a special moment to see, you know, my next generation raising up in those special memories together. But while that was so special, I, you, you do not envy 12 hours in the car with a five-month-old and a three-year-old. And there was some traffic on 75. Anyone else get caught in that traffic? Woo-wee! That was tough. I mean, at certain moments, Toy and I were just like, okay, I'm not going to scream. I'm not going to scream. I'm not going to scream. Just, oh, it was terrible, but awesome. Amen. So I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. You know, today we're talking about communion. And, and the title is Communion, a Serious Celebration. And we're going to dive into this today. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through three questions. Uh, whether, this is your, whether you don't understand communion much or whether you've been practicing it for decades, I hope today can be helpful for you, a reminder, but also to give you some cool insights to take your communion deeper. So we'll be walking through what is communion, how often should we take communion? But the bulk of our time, we're going to be spending on why do we practice communion? And so we're going to focus on this for the whole lesson today. And we're doing this for an intentional reason. You know, over the last year and a half with COVID, we've decided almost entirely to make our sermons sermonians. I know you've noticed. And, and we did that intentionally to try to shorten the service, to, to accommodate virtually, to be able to pay attention, all, all that kind of stuff. But what that could do inadvertently is communicate, it could, it, it could accidentally communicate that we don't value communion as much. And that was never the intention. And so what today is all about is reestablishing this core principle to the, the heart of our faith. And to reestablishing it together in community. Now, before we jump in, uh, I do want to ask you guys a question. For you personally, how much do you value communion? Or another way to put it, if North River stopped practicing communion today and never did it again, how much would it change your personal life? How much does communion hold to your personal faith? I hope that as we go through this today, you can develop deeper convictions. Let's start in Luke chapter 22. Of course, it starts all the way back with Jesus. Luke 22, verse 7. Let's read. 
Then came the day of the pass of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now pause there for a second. I want you to notice every time the word Passover is mentioned. Uh, Luke intentionally mentions it a number of five times. And we're just put, take that, take it as a nugget, put it in your pocket. We'll come back to that. Verse eight, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. And he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house. The teacher asked, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. So they left and they found, did you think that was funny? (laughs) Amazing. Kiki, you're awesome. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Okay, so this is an incredible uh, meal that's going on right here where D- Jesus gets his, you know, his crew, his closest community, the 12 apostles, and he brings them together to, to eat and to drink together. And for the apostles, this would have been like a normal thing of his ministry. Remember, like Jesus came eating and drinking. And so to have a, a, a long meal, having great conversations with a glass of wine with his disciples would have been normal. For them, it could have seemed like it was just another day in the life of Jesus' ministry. Yet, this night was going to be different. What was about to happen right here in a candlelit upper room in ancient Palestine with 13 men would become a practice for millions and millions of people over the next 2,000 years to devote their lives to this. So what is it? What is communion? What did Jesus do? Well, if you look again, right, simply in verse 17, after taking the cup, that's the cup of wine, he gave thanks for it, and then he divided it among them. And then in verse 19, he took the bread and he gave thanks of it, And broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And of course, in verse 20, the cup is representative of the covenant of his blood. So so what what is communion simply? Communion is an intentional meal, specifically bread and wine, shared in community to remember and give thanks for Jesus's life and sacrifice. That's all it is. It's very simple. But you might go, well, hang on a second and grab your little, grab your little cup, right? You might say, hang on a second. This isn't a meal. I mean, I'm not, this, this doesn't seem like quite a fitting full meal with me. Why don't we, what, what happened? Like what happened to this idea of a meal? 
we, we don't have as much time to go into the whole history of it, about what that transition was like from a full Lord's Supper meal. But in short, um, you know, for the first couple hundred years after Jesus, it was almost always a meal. In fact, the reason the disciples came together was most importantly was to share this meal together and remember Jesus together. And it wasn't until the 300s when Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity, then took state funds to help fund Christians to build cathedrals and churches, that suddenly instead of Christianity being a lot more about, you know, a family group, being about 10 or 20 people coming together to celebrate Jesus together, it became about hundreds of people coming to celebrate Jesus together. And simply, it, it became a logistical issue. How do we share a meal with this many people at the same time in a building? And it was never, it was never intentionally to do away with the meal, but it was just a transition over time to something that you could do in a large group together. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with us just taking a piece of bread or taking the wine or juice, a fruit of the vine, because that's, that's the, the, the core of this is the cup and the bread. However, I do think there's something so special about practicing communion together over a meal in community. And more and more often, we're, as a church, we're going to have opportunities like we did a month ago to have family group house church Sundays where we can have church in our homes over a meal to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Amen? Okay, so that's, that's uh, what is communion. How often should you celebrate communion? Well, in Scripture, there is no, uh, com- there's, while there is a biblical pattern of what they did, there's no command in Scripture for how often to practice communion. So we know that it was extremely important to them, so much so that Jesus had this moment with the disciples here in Luke 22, and then Jesus died. We're going to read that in a little bit. And then they go right on Acts 2 at Pentecost. They baptize 3,000. The church starts. And of the four crucial elements that they teach those first Christians ever to devote themselves to, what was at the heart of one of them? Those first, you know, the 3,000 men were baptized, and they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. It was of extreme importance to the first century church to break bread. That's referencing communion, right? Communion can be breaking bread. It can be the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about the Eucharist. And then, but there is a pattern in Acts 20. And here we see on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Now, when you see a pattern in Scripture in the book of Acts, and there's no command to do it, that does not mean it's binding for us. But in general, that probably means there's a healthy reason why they did that. And so what we do here at North River is we take that and we say, hey, you know what? We're going to celebrate communion the first day of the week, Sunday. And we're going to do it every week to follow through on this pattern. Now, are you allowed to, to celebrate communion on a day that is not Sunday? <gasps> are you allowed to do that? Not, not in church? Are you allowed to do that? Of course. In fact, some of my favorite communions, believe it or not, have not been right here. They've been with my friends in a living room, celebrating a meal. Now, my favorite communion, it was on the beach in the Dominican Republic on my honeymoon. 
and it was my wife, me, and the Holy Spirit. And it was, it was awesome. You know what I mean? It was great. I mean, yes, please celebrate communion. Remember Jesus in community, his sacrifice in the life outside of this time on Sundays. It's such a special thing for us to do. Um, but it is so incredibly important to follow through on. You know, some of, some of the memories I love is memories of um, when someone's friend isn't able to come to church on a Sunday for whatever the reason, and then, you know, they'll go over there that night, not to re-listen to the message, but they'll go over there that night to celebrate communion with them. And to say, hey, I want, you to be able to, I want to remember Jesus with you in community. But the truth is, is that... Um, while there's liberty and how often we take it, and even on what the meal exactly looks like, I think it can be easy to unintentionally take for granted the importance of the Lord's Supper. I don't know what your household looked like over COVID when you were, you were streaming church on your couch, like what your communions usually looked like. Now, sometimes in our household, we nailed it. We had the wine ready. We had the crackers ready. It was already on the nightstand. We didn't have to go run to the kitchen. Like we were ready to have it. Campbell's asleep. Like we had this, sometimes we were ready. Now, other times, we were not ready. I mean, Cam was screaming in my ear, right? Like, let me just grab some of his bagel from the morning to take for communion. Grab a swig of orange juice. I think that's the fruit of the vine. Like, sometimes, and it, over COVID, it could have been so easy. Am I the only one that did that? Okay, thanks. Yeah, I'm not going to hell. Okay, okay. So, I mean, but it can be, we got challenged to rethink, why do we do this? What's the big deal? Why was it so important? And in our consumer-heavy world, where there's all the podcasts and shows and all we ever do is consume, it can be easy to take that to church and to think that the most important part of church is the sermon, where I can consume information about Jesus. Now, praise God for that. Even in the first century, that was so cherished. The preaching of the Word was so cherished. But when we read the Bible— the main reason they came together wasn't even for the preaching of the word. The main reason they came together was for the Lord's Supper, to celebrate and remember Jesus over a meal in community. That was the main reason they came together. So why is communion so important? Why do we practice communion? Well, back in Luke 22. We'll read some of these passages again, right? Verse 19, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Yet again, it's not a, a challenging concept, but put simply, why do we practice communion? Well, it's to remember and to give thanks for Jesus's life and sacrifice and community. It's a time when we can come together and remember this and celebrate. It, it's kind of interesting. It's so sad for what Jesus had to go to, yet it's an incredible celebration of the love and the grace that it represents. And it kind of sounds a lot like, you know, when you talk about in community over a meal giving thanks, it kind of sounds a lot about what a lot of us just did. Didn't we just have a meal on Thursday for Thanksgiving in community? You know, one of the words for communion I mentioned a second ago is the word Eucharist. And we don't use that word as much. It's kind of more of a high church, usually Catholic kind of word. But the Eucharist, uh, it has a special connection even to this, right? So the Eucharist, meaning communion, is a transliteration of the Greek word Eucharistia, which means thanksgiving. 
So, right, a translation is when you take the meaning of a word in one language and you translate it to a word that has the same meaning in a different language. But then a transliteration is when you take the words and the sounds of a word in an old language like Greek and you create a new word that sounds the same exact thing because you want the, the meaning to be connected. And so from the, 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 around the three, in the 300s, when they came up with this word Eucharist, they said, you know what, what are we going to call this that we do every, every week? Well, what's the main focus of it? It's Thanksgiving. So let's take this Greek word, Eucharistia, and let's just create a new word, Eucharist, to be Thanksgiving. It's the same thing as baptism, right, with the Greek word baptizo, and they just created a new word, baptism, to sound the exact same, right? It's transliteration. And so in, in one sense, every single week, we get to celebrate a Thanksgiving meal together with this family, just without all the crazy uncles. <laughs> what an incredible celebration. The second piece for why we do communion is because it's an identity-forming meal similar to the Passover. An identity-forming meal. There's so much power in, re in uh, remembering things together over a meal and community. Yet the truth is, is that this can be very hard for us to take time to remember things together. Because in our fast-paced society, we're always on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. And very rarely do we take the time to stop to look back, to consider, to reflect, and to be grateful. And I don't know about you, whenever I get together with my family, there's certain memories that get brought up every single year. You know what I'm talking about? And it forms your identity of who you are. You know, this last week, a memory got brought up multiple times that I'm not, you know, very proud of, all right? So, when it went, like 14 years ago, I was, I was flying down a road on a moped going 40 miles an hour in bathing suit in Florida, bathing suit, no shoes, no shirt, and I fell off. And then I, and I you know, I hit on the ground, and I, and I tumbled, I think, like three miles, right? <laughs> and then finally when I stopped, right, I'm just like screaming a lot of terrible things, and then banging on people's doors, I was too far away. My cousins came and found me laying on some person's driveway, like almost passed out. And then they, they take me back to my aunt and uncle's house, and then I'm just laying on their floor in a pool of blood. I mean, like, I almost had no skin on me. And they're like, George, George, do you remember that? I'm like, no, I don't actually. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, my grandma takes me to the emergency room. I had her, to keep me awake, I had her play my favorite song at the time. My grandma, Nuck If You Buck, you know? <laughs> and uh, she's like, Jordan, do you remember that? And then, and then, and then my aunt, my, my, my aunt, my other side of the family, almost overdosed me on pain medicine, trying to just take care of me. Jordan, do you remember? <laughs> like, it got brought up time and time again. Like, this, I can't see them without the, bringing this up. I don't know why. <laughs> but man, it forms part of our identity as a, as, as a culture, as a family, as a community. Even when you remember bad things, it can draw you together as community in your identity. I mean, what about us? Going through 2020 together as a, as a, fa a church family. Going through, what we, you know, the, the economic crisis and the racial tension and the political, I mean, just all that stuff as a family. But of course, the, the thing that we remember most is Jesus crucified. And remembering that painful memory can draw us together more than anything else. So back here in Luke 22, though, it's, it's a, why do we practice communion? Well, it is an identity-forming meal similar to the Passover. 
Let's look back at Luke's usage of the word Passover. He actually brings it up five times. And it's very interesting. Usually, uh, with, a, with a gospel or a biblical writer, there will be some like small hint at a deeper meaning that you got to kind of dig and treasure trove for. Other times, they're like, you have to get this, dude. Like, you got to make this connection. And they make it obvious. It's like in verse 7, right? Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. If he just said that, we would know the entire things about Passover. But that's not just what he says, right? In verse 8, uh, go and make preparations to eat the Passover. In verse 11, where's the guest room where, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? In verse 13, so they prepared the Passover. And then down in verse 14, Luke is like, just in case after all this mention of Passover, you think the story skipped ahead to a week later and we're celebrating a different meal. Just in case you weren't sure, verse 14, I have eagerly decided to eat this Passover with you. Luke wants us to make this connection. He wants us to build, what is, this, what is this hyperlink? What is this connection to the Passover and why is it so important? Uh, hmm. Is there another meal in the Bible where you come together in community over a meal to remember blood? Isn't it the Passover? If you go back to Exodus chapter 12, this is where the first Passover happens. And right, if, if you're if you kind of shaky on what is the Passover, right? The God's people were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And the Passover is the night where they came out. And there have been all these plagues, and this was the last plague. And there was going to be an angel that went through and struck down the firstborn. And, um, you know, the Passover meal was eaten the night before the Exodus, when the Israelites left Egypt. That's when God liberated his people from slavery. And each family was told to kill a flawless lamb without blemish and then to take its blood and dab it around the, the doorposts of their house. And then they roasted the lamb and they ate it together as a family and community with unleavened bread. And that night, the Lord passed over those homes. We can see this uh, if we just take a section out of it, Exodus 12. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now this is a day you are to commemorate. For generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. That blood, in one sense, literally saved them. It saved them from death. It saved them from destruction because the, the, the destruction passed over them, right? And then in, in Deuteronomy 16, when it's talking about the Passover, it says, so that all the days of your life, you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Passover was a meal in community where you remembered how that blood saved you. Now, and now Luke is saying, you know, through Jesus, right, that we, there's this new Passover lamb. There's a new Passover lamb in Jesus Christ. It's not just, you know, that's not just the Passover. That got, it literally got handed down thousands of years and year after year after year. It became a reminder to the generation of who their identity really was, of who their God was, how he saved them, and then who that made them. Why was it an identity-forming meal? Well, if you think about it, there's that old phrase like a family that prays together stays together. You, know, you guys know that one? How about the phrase a family that eats together doesn't hate each other? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that one's too catchy. But, 
But there's, there's, I, there's, things, there's things in our lives that form our identities. And there's almost nothing more that shapes our identity than who you eat with on a consistent basis. That night changed everything for the Israelites, right? Before that night, they were slaves. After that night, they were free. Before that night, they were just individual families. Their identity was in their individual family. But after that night, a nation was born. That night changed everything for their identity. And year after year, they reestablished their identity in God and who that made them. And yet again, now Luke is saying, we have a new Passover lamb. Amen? This Jesus who died in our place so that our sins could be passed over and that we wouldn't experience the destruction that our sins deserve. And he's given us a new meal to ground our identity in who God is and in who we are. You see, communion is not just another religious ritual. Christianity isn't just about a set of do's and do nots that you have to adhere to. Christianity and communion is a way of living. Communion is the practice of eating together in community, specifically to remember Jesus' life and sacrifice. And each time we do this together, we reestablish our identity of who God is and who we are. We, that we serve a God of sacrificial love that was willing to sacrifice his son for us. And every time we remember communion, we reestablish that's who God is. Then we also remember who that makes us. Community, or, um, communion is another identity-forming meal. You see, in the same way, before the cross, we were slaves in our sin. But because of the cross, we were free in his kingdom. Before the cross, we were individuals. Our identity was just about me. We were individualistic. But because of the cross, we were brought into community in his family as dearly loved sons and daughters. Amen? It's changed everything. It, it reminds us of, of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, right? You guys remember this? So it's all about our identity. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And we remember, every time we came communion, remember what it was that changed this. Because once, once, you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once, you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. Every time we take that cup and we take that bread... And we remember Jesus' sacrifice. We also remember who that makes us and who that makes us in community. Amen? Amen. And this united identity of the death of Jesus is actually what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11. Flip over there with me. 1 Corinthians 11. Now, in Corinth... Uh, there was a lot of divisions going on in the church. And, you know, First, first Corinthians 3 is talking about the divisions over leaders. And they got divided over who they follow. And then kind of a little bit later, like an 8 to 10, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, they're getting divided over what food you should eat and what food you should not eat. And then here there's another division in 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul's trying to unite them in. And so in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 17, uh, Paul has a long discourse on communion. It says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. 
In the first place, I hear that when you came together as a church, there are divisions among you. And so to, to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have, to be, there have to be differences among you to so which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Now, uh, right here, we don't know what the divisions and what the differences were. We don't know if it was between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers or what it was. But what we do know is that there was a division. And they would come to a home to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And one group or one clique of them would kind of hog all the food to themselves, take all the wine so much so that they were getting drunk. And And the others would be left hungry or be left without any cup to remember the blood of Jesus. And Paul says, man, you better watch out. This is not okay. And what, let's continue. Let's see what he says. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whenever, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, listen to this, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if you were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So Paul kind of gets some teeth right here. And he gets kind of intense about communion, about remembering Jesus. First, he reminds them of Jesus' words. Do this in remembrance of me. To celebrate communion, you, you, you do this. And then he calls them, what do you do when you celebrate in verse 26? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, a side note that I wasn't able to get into today is that communion has three parts. One is looking back at Passover. One is looking at the here and the now with Jesus in the age the kingdom has broken in, but not yet, the age right now in his blood. And the next one is the kingdom to come. It's a foreshadowing of the great feast with Jesus and his future kingdom. It's kind of cool. We don't have time to go into all that. But we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's so important. And what Paul is saying, when you bring a division into the church and you let that division continue to divide you, even when you take communion, what you're doing is you're saying what another group proclaims is more important than proclaiming the death of the Lord Jesus. Because there's so many groups out there that proclaim something is more important than Jesus. You guys know what I'm talking about. 
There's so many groups that want you to believe that your identity is based off of what they proclaim instead of what Jesus has done for you. What are some examples? You know, Hollywood, you heard of Hollywood? You heard, you heard of it, right? Hollywood proclaims your identity should be based first off of how much money you make or what you look like. Politics, I know none of us have heard of politics. Politics proclaim your identity should be based first off your political party or off of some leader. Capitalism proclaims that your identity should be based off of your position and your job. And that should be your first identity. Society proclaims your identity should be based first off your relationship status or how many kids you have. There's all these other different groups that are proclaiming something that say, make this your first piece of your identity. And when Paul, when Paul says, it's when we come together and we hold on to those banners and, and we hold on to them and it divides us instead of holding on to the banner of the Lord's death, man, he says, you better watch out. He says, you better watch out. He says, this isn't some mindless ritual that you can do with your brain turned off. He says, you have to examine yourselves. Everyone, who, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the wine. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, meaning our unity, eat and drink judgment. Eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is one of those hard truths in scripture we don't like to read. And I'm not doing this to shame you. I'm doing this so we can enjoy the celebration that this really is and to save you from judgment. You can call judgment on yourself if you bring divisions from the world into his church. Don't turn off your brain when you take communion. Sometimes it's better to not take communion, to get your heart right and go, go take it that night or the next morning because we can celebrate it not just on Sunday mornings, amen? Amen. <laughs> So in one sense, we are celebrating the amazing love, the amazing grace of what Jesus did to bring us into his kingdom. But in the other sense, this is serious. And it's a serious celebration. So it's not something we do willy-nilly, but we do something in honor of the most important being and the most important act, the most important human in the universe. We proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus. When we come together, we celebrate communion and we proclaim him. Amen, church? We proclaim that we are not of the kingdoms of this world. Communion is a bold stake. It's a banner in the ground. It's a banner of our identity and who we are. It's a banner every week about who God is and who he makes us. That our first identity is in Christ crucified. We proclaim that through his grace that he has changed us. Here in this community... It does not matter how much money you make. Here in this community, it does not matter what political view you come from. Here in this community, it does not matter what color of your skin is or how big or how tall you are. In this community, it doesn't matter what position you have at work. And in this community, it doesn't matter what your relationship status is or how many kids you have. In this community, something matters more than all of those things combined. And that is Christ crucified. That's who we proclaim in communion. We throw out all those other banners and we say our identity is not in those things. 
They do not have power over us. And when we come and we remember Jesus, we say our identity is in him and him alone. So no matter what differences we have in the world, community, communion brings us into community that's more powerful than all of those differences. Amen, church? So to close out the service, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Matthew 27. And you can read along if you want. I'm going to read the entire crucifixion account. And I'm going to say a short prayer. I didn't want to talk about communion and the different elements of it without really focusing on what we, we're remembering. So you can read along if you want. You can put your Bible down and close your eyes and just listen. But I want us to go into this communion proclaiming the Lord's death. So we'll read the Lord's death together. Amen? <clears throat> Matthew 27. Starting verse 25. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of the soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Then they took a staff and they put it in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and they mocked, well, hail king of the Jews, they said, and they spit on him. And took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and they put on his clothes again. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over, over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. After three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbatini, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and put on a sponge and got a sponge. He put, filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he 
gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many of holy people who had died were raised to life. They came up out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father God, we humbly come to you now. We will never be deserving of what we just read, of Jesus dying for me, for every person in this room. God, we remember his, his sacrifice. We remember his life and the, our favorite moments of Jesus alongside of that. But ultimately, we remember his love. God, I pray during this time that we can examine ourselves, that we leave out the divisions of this world and we proclaim one thing on the throne of our hearts, that we will proclaim right now in community, Jesus Christ crucified. And in his name we pray. Amen.